When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, this is James Mercer from The Shins. This is Shirley Manson. This is Low Tallest, co-founder of The Cure. This is Huey Lewis giving you the story behind the song. The story behind the song is back with an exciting second season. We peel back the layers on music's most iconic hits with legendary artists like The Killers, Heart, The B-52s, Violent Femmes, Jewel, Huey Lewis, Modern English, and more. To keep the music flowing, we'll be sprinkling in classic episodes from our archives between each new one. So check out the story behind the song wherever you get your podcast. Well, hello there. It's the Spark Parade, a show where I talk to amazing people about the art and culture that's shaped their lives. I'm Adam Unz. Ever so glad you could join me. So this week is a fun one, not just because I'll be discussing a metric ton of artworks. Seriously. You can stack them up and weigh them after you finished listening. But also, I had a wonderful chat with actor Joseph May about his love for rock gods Led Zeppelin, Harold Pinter's seminal 1960 play The Caretaker, and Rob Reiner's 1986 coming-of-age classic film Stand By Me. And those are just jumping-off points. It was quite a wide-ranging conversation. You may know Joe from his work as a series regular on the Matt LeBlanc-starring TV comedy episodes, in which he played Andy Button. He also does a lot of voiceover work, notably for Thomas the Tank Engine as the voice of Thomas. Wow, right? Joe is an awesome dude, and we had a real laugh. It was also a nostalgia fest for both of us because there's a lot of overlap in our discovery and experience of the artworks Joe wanted to discuss. That was especially true about Stand By Me. Thinking about Stand By Me made me reminisce about being the age of the characters in the movie. 12 or 13 years old and just starting to dip a toe in the assertion of independence waters. That was a really formative time for me and perhaps for everyone, when it came to developing my tastes in art and culture. I already had the knowledge and influence passed down to me from my grandparents and parents and older sisters, but my tween years were the time when I really started to mix those ideas with the knowledge and influence gleaned from my peers. I was also lucky enough to have parents who let me watch and listen to basically whatever the fuck I wanted to, so I loved bragging to my friends with more conservative parents about the grown-up movies and TV I'd seen. As I think I've mentioned before, I was a precocious little shit. But, but my friends would also turn me on to stuff they'd found through their family members and other friends. It was a swirling vortex of information, and all of us absorbed as much of it as our little bodies could handle. It was such an exciting time. We wanted to outdo and impress each other with our experiences of new music, cool movies, whatever we could get our hands on. And all of those kids drawing on so many different sources of information created this giant foundational pool of artworks. Some of what I learned about from my friends wasn't for me because, duh, taste is subjective, but I picked and chose and found the works that fit into my wheelhouse, and I used those pieces to build a kind of taste profile. Obviously, it's grown and changed as I've aged and met new people, but the artworks I loved at that age will always hold a special place in my heart. Those are the pieces that helped me to forge my own identity. They helped me through a time of immense change and turmoil, and I think for that reason, those artworks will always be a comfort to me. Well, did I do it? Was that good enough? 
Tweet your answers at me immediately after finishing listening to the rest of the episode. Here comes my chat with Joseph May about Led Zeppelin, The Caretaker, and Stand By Me. Well, why don't we start with a little music? Okay. Should we talk about Led Zeppelin? Yes, why not? Um, so, I mean, with bands like that, where they're just kind of everywhere, there's mm-hmm. like, no escape. I don't know if you had, like, a specific memory of discovering them or if it was just kind of like, they're <laughs> always did. around. No, it was. It was all, but I, I, so I grew up in Calgary, and it was only, like, country radio and top 40, and that was basically it. There wasn't much else. And classic rock. But mm. I didn't really know the classic rock. And then um, I was introduced to the cheesiest Led Zeppelin song of all, which is Stairway to Heaven, right? And um, But I kind of fell in love with that. And it introduced me to their music, and then from that point on, I just totally fell over, um, head over heels for them, basically. Yeah. And is it, um, I mean, the, the Stairway to Heaven is kind of a, um, I, I don't know. I don't know if that's, it's like an anomaly. It's just like because it was such a huge song and because it's yes. that, like everybody, even someone who's not a fan of theirs, recognizes Would know the song. and like knows it. Yeah. So that was kind of the gateway drug. And then you found it was the gateway the drug. Stuff. Yeah. It was. It was all, everything kind of, it was a confluence of things that all happened at the same time. I was like around, I guess around 13, 12, 13, and uh, going to like grade seven, eight, around that period. And uh, so what happened, I was kind of joined the, the Johnson family band which were, I mean, weren't terribly good, but I, I, I sang, and I sang Stairway to Heaven uh, for them, and so I kind of fell in love with it if, in that reason as well. But next door to them was a family called The Stars, and they were kind of mad and wonderful and crazy. And my buddy Chris, uh, who Chris Starr, his sister Kenny, who loved music, and she uh, you know, kind of gave us a lot more Zeppelin, kind of, you got to check out this album if you like that, and you got to get into Led Zeppelin 1, start there, and then work your all, the whole way through. And then, but from all, she also introduced it into, like, De La Soul and a lot of rap music and uh, hip-hop and that kind of thing. And then, yeah, it, it just it started the whole thing, basically. And also, I think, led to me be uh, loving a lot of the different, you know, eclectic music, I think. Zeppelin yeah. kind of was that little gateway drug. Yeah. I know because you, you kind of looked into the history of Zeppelin, what, what got them into it with the blues and that kind of thing. And so I fell in love with the blues as well. Mm. And, uh, you know, look at the Robert Johnson and the Muddy Waters and stuff. And yeah, and so it was it was the beginning of a whole love affair, I think, with all that kind of thing. And I, I didn't get really tired of, of Zeppelin through my whole teens until I think I reached around 20 years old and then kind of broke off finally from it all and into a whole new world of things. I, I think it is. I don't know if it's... a a universal experience because there are definitely people who I know who like, you know, don't really care about music or are not, Mm -hmm. you know, if they like music, it's kind of a passive thing. It's like, if something is on, they absorb it and they don't really (laughs) care. But I think for people who are passionate about music, people who feel like, you know, something hearing a band like Led Zeppelin for the first time or starting to get into them was this really formative experience. Mm. I don't think it's uncommon for people to feel like they need to dig deeper and then like, you know, find out about the band's history and where they came from and get into that music. And then also the legacy that that band has left and explore other bands that have been influenced by them and um, all that kind of stuff. But no, it was my my friend Chris's sister, Kenny, she was a big influence on us. She, uh, she, because she's a musician herself still now. And um, yeah, and she, um, tons of different music, like even like African music and that kind of thing we listened to. It was just, you know, and Ry Cooter and all those kind of things. And so, yeah, that was having that outside influence. And then I had a really great friend, um, 
whose dad was Pakistani, who lived in London in the 60s, was a big hippie and that kind of thing. And then he just introduced us to a whole new swell of music, so which was great, especially when you're like in those formative years of like 14, 15, 16 and that kind of thing. It was it was it was massive. Yeah, I always I don't know feel sorry for is the 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 right uh, sentiment, but um, I I it kind of hurts my heart a little bit when I hear of people who didn't have older people who kind of helped guided them, them along, along and yeah, or at least gave them a little nudge in the right direction. And I think yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Did you have that? Yeah, yeah. Like my older o- oldest sister um, introduced me to a lot of stuff. My dad was like loved music and was a huge part of me uh, of, uh, developing my taste. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it is that exactly what you said, that you get this foundation from people around you, you know, uh, grown-ups who you care about or older kids who you care about throw you a bone and, and uh, try, try and <laughs> kind of um, give you an idea of where to start. And then that kind of plants the seed of where your taste springs from. And you, yeah. Um, as you get older, move in different directions and, and figure stuff out for yourself. Yeah. Having those strong foundational touchstones, you know, <laughs> being able to um, rely on other people to, to to guide you towards things that might be of interest. It was um, wonderful having having those guys. We also had this this amazing record shop called Megatunes, which I loved the name. Um, and it was on 17th Ave in Calgary. And these two guys, one had a mullet and a mustache, and the other guy was like, um, like, <laughs> like long hair, I think, failed rock stars, or, or you know, especially in Calgary. And um, they were just wonderful to us as teenagers, you know, the couple of long-haired kind of teens coming into the shop who they might have feared would be like ripping off their CDs. Would They had these little listening stations and they'd say, what do you like? And they'd go, if you like that, then you'd like this. And they'd kind of put us in these listening stations and they'd, you could sit there for half an hour and listen to stuff. And then it was amazing. And we probably, you know, spent a lot of money there too. But, it, you know, it was it was an amazing thing to have these guys help us out. Loved it. They, you can understand probably like, like, you know, it was fairly limited in Calgary what you could do or see. It wasn't a, exactly a cultural hub, um, Calgary, but um, mm. <laughs> a beautiful spot to grow up. But yeah. music, musically, you were very limited. So to have these other people who could expand your horizons was a huge thing for us at the time. Because my parents certainly weren't into music at all. They, mm. My mom, I think Gilbert and Sullivan, <laughs> I think my <laughs> mom used to play for me. And my mm. dad would just play classical music and smoke a cigar. I think that was, that was basically what I grew up with. Yeah. So and things could have uh, turned out. Uh, differently if you followed <laughs> either of those paths. I mean, I know. You know. Although I think I did play the Pirate King in Pirates Penzance when I was in grade eight, so there was a you know the, that foundation did help there. <laughs> I was I was ready for it when the time came. <laughs> yes. Oh my god. Um, but uh, the Led Zeppelin connection, like that led on to other rock bands and stuff as well no it went on to the yeah from there was like on to um i guess acdc metallica a lot of heavy metal i got into that but also as i said like into the blues and then into jazz like miles davis i don't know how it led to that but i think it was from the we got into the blues and in calgary there's a place called the king eddie hotel and you had it was this one weird anomaly in the blues music scene which was a really popular venue that people would go to uh, blues musicians would go to and i think we were all underage but we all could they let us in no matter what and um you just saw these amazing blues musicians playing the harmonica or whatever it was and that led us down that road to kind of look into more kind of british bands as well who were into that and then yeah really like into like from there into miles davis because the i love the blues and then i think uh, i don't know how it led to that but it did and then that 
into like John Coltrane and then into Max Roach because of John Bonham. You looked at his influences as well with the jazz drumming and that kind of thing. And so it was, yeah, it really opened up doors and avenues. And I think, I don't know how, it just was an amazing experience to kind of follow where that, that little thread and see where it went. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, it's all, there's all uh, links between all yeah. those things. And that is the way with, popular music i think i mean at modern music meaning anything in the last 150 years mm. all kind of it's uh branches of a family tree so it makes sense that one little thread of something can lead to this whole new uh, yeah you know section new genre of of stuff but uh yeah like i was saying before i, I think uh having people to help you out a little bit but also just having a curious mind and you know feeling like passionate about music feeling like it's something that you're really interested in and mm -hmm. uh, doing a little bit of research on your own that's the kind of research that i could get on board with when i was a kid yeah, <laughs> that's exactly I, it. it's so true that's yeah. so true like, you didn't have the internet or anything like that so you would have to go to like kind of record stores and whatnot to kind of look through these things and find out the influences and ask people and whatnot and then someone would break out their vinyl and they kind of show you what was what i mean that was the only way to do it and it was a wonderful experience because it was hands-on wasn't it it wasn't just something you could kind of click on and off of you had, you had to really kind of dive deep and it was a wonderful experience I keep saying it, but I, but it was it was like, I, think, I think from the house I grew up in, which was a, a you know a lovely house, but it was very limited in 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 that sense musically. So I couldn't believe what I was hearing from heavy metal to thrash metal and and then into kind of soft sounding kind of um, country music as well. I mean, a lot of the you know, kind of balance that Led Zeppelin did, I loved as well. You know, because yeah, yeah. I, I think it touched it touched on the hard rock kind of element of like kind of banging your head and kind of jumping around to the kind of, you know, sentimental maudlin uh, teen uh, that was inside me that was feeling desperately sorry for myself for not being able to, you know, for being turned down by that girl again or whatever, right? Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. it was, it touched into all those things. It was, it was wonderful. Yeah. And I also like it when there's a band that, you know, I don't think it's unusual for bands to have fast songs and slow songs or, you know, no. uh, harder songs and ballads. But um, with... Zeppelin, I think the contrast was pretty stark. And mm. for, for a band that is, I think, pretty universally given credit for uh, at least a huge part of the starting what became heavy metal, um, yeah. having those songs that are just like really tough, you know, really like mm. guitars mm. and drums and like really aggressive. And then also songs that are almost sweet and kind of you know, yeah. tons <laughs> yeah. of melancholy and really <laughs> emotion. Yeah. What was I listening to? I was listening to um, was it Fool in the Rain. Uh, did you, do you remember that song from Into the Outdoor? I, I'd completely forgotten about it. And I'd even forgotten about the album. And then I was looking through the whole catalog and I went, oh my God, Into the Outdoor. And then I looked and then Fool in the Rain. And it's such a kind of cheesy, joyous song. <laughs> it was a kind of my secret little favorite. I remember when it first came out and I didn't really want to tell my friends that I loved it so much. I'd kind of play it to myself. Because <laughs> it was um, it was so kind of different and incongruous to everything else they did. But Which I think opened up other avenues to music as well. So, yeah. Um, well, mm. why don't we, at this juncture, have a little uh, <gasps> chat about uh, Harold Pinter, about The Caretaker? Oh, okay. Because, you know, um, it's just a smooth, smooth, seamless transition. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't it ever? Uh, yeah, From Zeppelin to The Caretaker. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so you saw uh, Donald Pleasant's? Yeah, and Colin and, Firth, and I had to look yeah, it up, the other guy, uh, Peter Howitt, um, mm. I think that's how you say it, uh, in 1991, when I was 17, so I, because my parents are from London, and I, all my family are from here, but I grew up, they, my parents immigrated, so we had to come back every couple of years and whatnot, and, and we'd get, we'd be taken to the theater, I think I've 
went to see Midsummer Night's Dream at Regent's Park Open Air Theater and then and a few other little things over the years, but nothing that had had huge impact on me. And I was doing theater in um, school in Calgary and, you know, doing Taming of the Shrew and then it said Pirate King and Gilbert and Sullivan. <laughs> but, yes. um, yeah. and, uh, and then I think the only shows that would come through town were like Les Mis or and Our Town and that kind of thing. It was, it was nothing nothing you could really dig, get your teeth into. Do you know what I mean? Okay. And so I remember my mom, because I, I was showing a deep interest in, uh, in acting and we talked about it and we talked about you know where you could go to school for it because i was 17 is like getting that age you go to university in canada where can you go and then she got us tickets for the caretaker and at the um at, then it was called the comedy theater and now it's called the pinterest theater and yeah I, I i'd never seen anything like it it, it blew me away i was 17 mm -hmm. i'd never heard language like that i think it was i think the specificity of the language and the simplicity of the acting and seeing a stage which was like kind of like a really dirty old grubby room you know <laughs> and, mm -hmm. that kind of thing. And, and the monologues which be kind of the it could be this rage suddenly from uh, donald pleasance as the caretaker and then and the, as davies and then and then just kind of the calmness of the performance was wonderful to watch and then i think colin firth is aston was incredible i remember that performance just as being watching i remember that at the end of act one or act two, I think it is, uh, before the interval, there's, he does a speech about how he has been put in the mental hospital and then they put the pincers on him and they kind of, uh, they give him, I think, electro, whatever, what was the term, I think, to the brain? I can't remember the term. Electroshock therapy. Electroshock therapy. Thank you. Gosh, see, this is my age showing. <laughs> a word like shock I'm having to look for. Yeah. But, um, uh, <laughs> but he gives it, it, it was so powerful and palpable and I just was blown away by it. I was like, holy shit, that's what I need to do. I need to fucking do this. This is incredible. I want to be able to do that. I want to be able to do and act with language like that. And because it, it just seems so unforced, I think it was, you know, compared to everything else I'd seen before. And the next day, I remember insisting on going to RADA to kind of check out what was available there. And then finding out about the summer school, which I made sure my mom signed me up for and whatnot. But it was, yeah, everything about that play blew me away at the time. It was a visceral experience for me, I think. More, mm. I don't know if it was the content as much as it was seeing something that was just so different, even though it was 30 years old at the time. You know, it was from 1960. Yeah. It was written in. So this was 1991, yeah, so it was... Donald Pleasance had been working yeah. on that play for 30 years as well. Like, he was in the original <laughs> cast. I know, which I, I didn't know. Yeah. Until I, I started looking it up again after our, car, you know, texting back and forth with you, but um, I, I had no idea that he'd been in that, and it's incredible to think of how he would have done that in his, I guess, late forties, early fifty or mid fifties. I'm not, no, yeah, yeah, late forties yeah. probably. I mean, it was I don't know how he'd play that part to you because yeah. he just seemed pretty, you know, in his seventies. That's what it seemed to be right for a man in his seventies, you know, the end of his tether, at the end of his life, right, and mm. lost and. He was incredible. I, and of course, I'd, I'd, I'd never seen him in anything either on film mm. or whatnot. I didn't know who he was and I didn't know who Colin Firth was. I didn't know any of them were or Pinter. But um, shows my ignorance. But, but uh, <laughs> it, 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 again, it was one of the things. It was just this, it opened up all these avenues from that point on. I was like, wow, that is what I want to do. Because it, it just, the language alone was just the specificity of it, I think. And then and the humor that you could land a joke in the middle of nowhere, which out of nothing, it seemed. <laughs> Yeah. So, yeah. What is your experience with Pinter? Um, kind of the same. I mean, uh, I I think I saw uh, the Caretaker a bit later. There was a production, if I if memory serves me correctly, mm. the little theater in the Actors Center in London. What is oh, that called? Oh yeah, I know the um, Tristan Bates. Yes, there was a production yeah. there. I think 
that mm. I saw. Oh, really? And yeah, it was incredible. And I think, you know, I, I, I'd learned about Pinter in acting school mm. and just kind of, um, I went to a performing arts high school as well. And uh, oh, okay. I think learned a, a bit about him there. But I've always felt like, you know, I know he kind of gets lumped in with the theater of the absurd crew and uh, mm. gets compared to Beckett and, and stuff a lot. And I understand where those comparisons are coming from. But I think the difference is you have that, as you said, specificity with the language. Everything, you know, everything's not quite reality. There's, you yeah. know, there's a lot of, there's repetition. There's it's heightened. kind of, yeah. yeah. But there's always this foundation in reality. And it's always like, to me, at least, feels like real people, even if they're in absurd situations, if they're behaving in an absurd manner, that there's always this kind of grounding in many times working class issues and taking these real world themes and not making them abstract in the play, that it's very explicit, like the caretaker, Mm. you know, mental illness, racism, class, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. all of those things are really clear and present. And even if you're watching it and you're kind of like, what the fuck is going on? (laughs) Um, It still feels like watching kind of a a bizarre exchange between real people instead of something yeah it it, it, with Beckett people compare this a lot to waiting for Godot and I think the difference is that that play people could do it on the moon and it would be like yeah okay that that Mm -hmm. that fits um and (laughs) with this play like it feels like it needs to be you know I mean it's it, it is explicitly in the script it needs to be in London it can't be you know the there's not as much room for it's not open uh, to interpretation, interpretation. It's, right. It's, right. <laughs> yeah no this, that's uh, that's what maybe I think it had such an impact Beckett I love Beckett I mean that introduced me to Beckett as well and Mamet and I think Mamet obviously got his from Pinter got his language and the way he worked from that point on from mm-hmm. Pinter I, I, I can only imagine but uh, yeah I just I, I think for me it kind of <laughs> things like Shaw and uh, other playwrights like that and even Shakespeare to a degree I at the time, I was like, I, didn't, well, I wanted nothing to do with it. I wanted just something as, speci- as specific as that, which you could land the thought and it would, without having to do much, put much effort into it, I, in the sense. It just felt effortless. Mm-hmm. And even though every, there's a huge amount going on behind it, it just felt effortless. And that was what, to me, was the big impact, I think. Yeah. And I, I kind of felt the same way as a teenager, too, that it was like Shakespeare, to me, was... Like the, I appreciated the stories, but I was just like, I don't have the fucking energy to deal with this <laughs> language. Glad you're saying. I'm glad to, you're saying that. Yeah, yeah d- trying to decipher all of this stuff. Like, this is work. And with something like yeah, Pinter, it is. You know, with Pinter, it's like it's still weird, and you still have to invest in it. But it felt mm. like people were still speaking the way that real people speak. Even if they're, yes. you know, repeating things, and you know, there's obviously yeah, and conversations carefully get lost placed pauses, and, yeah, and... It, but, but yeah, that's exactly it, and and I, I think that's what drew me to drama school. So, but I, every time I could gr- grab onto like a Pinter piece or anything like that at school, like we're going to do a lot, it would always be Pinter yeah. <laughs> every single yeah, time. Yeah. We grab a friend who we try to do like the dumb waiter or whatever it was, <laughs> and uh, I, I remember doing that for our agent shows and at lambda and um <laughs> i don't think we got any interest from it because we were so wrong for it but, <laughs> <laughs> but um but uh but it was uh, i love doing it i think yeah i could do i could have done it all day long i just 
I think it was, and, and also just the minimizing of everything. I just loved doing that and trying to make it smaller and smaller and smaller. I yeah. think I think I've lost lost that ability in my old age as I've as I've got bigger and bigger with my acting. But um, <laughs> <laughs> but, but uh, I loved I loved that stuff. It was great. Yeah, yeah. It, just, yeah. I, it blew me away. I've just um, and I I think yeah, and I'm, I'm Colin Firth. Look at him now, and then uh, th- looking at him back then is incredible to see the career he's had. Yeah, but. Um, also, I, I think I definitely relate to that. Uh, the overconfidence of the young actor and kind of like choosing <laughs> choosing roles for yourself that it's like, I can play an 80-year-old man. I can this, do this. I love this monologue. It doesn't matter. Everyone will love me in exactly. it. <laughs> exactly. I think I've, I've chosen a few of those over my years, yeah. yeah. I tried, there's another one, and I think there's these two old-timers sitting together. I can't remember the name of it. And me and my buddy Danny did did did, did that duologue as well. <laughs> I think looking back nostalgically at life, I think it was, you know, two 80-year-olds or something. We were like 20. But, yeah, uh, with no, <laughs> nothing to live off of or to kind of invest in it. But, uh, yeah. But, I, yeah. I was talking to somebody about this the other day. My drama school auditions i or no this was mm. uh this was a couple of months ago that uh there was a production of burn this the like oh Fred yeah Wilson play on which Broadway. i saw in london with uh, malkovich yeah it was yeah. um adam driver and uh carrie russell here how was it um it was it was good i mean i think that play is like kind of the opposite of pinter there's not really much room <laughs> for interpretation and it is what it no. is and it just kind of is like it's the same every time but they were they were good but there's that monologue that pale does at the beginning that's like that's when i was a, a, he it's just you know he's on coke and he's just like rabbiting on not making any sense and when i was a teenager i thought it was the coolest thing in the world and <laughs> i did that monologue to get into drama school and, it, was just and like, it worked uh in, in some places in some places <laughs> i think they were like who the fuck gave this kid advice this is just like this is so wrong but you know this is a character who's like in his late 30s and i was 17 or something <laughs> like, good work that's right i remember seeing that in london um i was at the rada summer school that's right and uh, these two american buddies we went to see it and uh malkovich was in, and during the middle of the play some man stood up and he went this play is shit <laughs> he started, and he stormed out. i remember oh made me laugh so hard at the time being kind of terrified but like amazed that that people did that um <laughs> and, yeah incredible and we went back afterwards we talked to malkovich and um Oh, just because wow. I think the the, the uh, girl, the actress, she was a professional actress in L.A. And she just had that confidence, which I never would have had. Mm. And um, I think I was mute as um, they, they asked questions about acting and I gave him a cigarette for free. That was basically my <laughs> moment with him. But um, <laughs> but I remember he gave us the time of day, which was incredible, I thought, and and yeah. didn't and seemed completely unbothered by the man yelling at him on stage. So yeah. <laughs> which yeah. is a wonderful way to be able to been traumatized by that. Yeah, he seems like uh, a guy who exists on a different plane. To, yes, to I know. Yeah. I, yeah, I worked at a hotel, and he used to stay there. And he was always like so kind and really sweet. But you know, he's a uh, he's uh, a character. He's <laughs> <laughs> a character. There's only no other way to describe it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um. Well, uh, you know. We're, we're skating along, we're moving, we're, we're shaking, mm-hmm. we're just like jumping from <laughs> medium to medium. There's no stopping us. Uh, maybe we should talk a little about film? Um, yeah, yeah, why not? Uh, how about Stand By Me, which is like, uh, oh, uh, like just kind of makes me 
it's all the feelings. Just the name of that movie is like, yeah, uh, you know, my whole childhood kind of teens. Well, and, mm, that's mm. it. That's the whole thing. It really it encapsulated it so perfectly. Yeah, because I, I, I went to see it in the cinema, and I was twelve or thirteen when it came out, and in 86 and I mean it was just exposed me on so many levels and so yeah you, you understand too, is that the whole thing of like when you're with your buddies at that time and friendships are developing and you're wanting to break away from home and you watch that movie and it just spoke to I think young well, especially young boys on such a level about you know the the friendship groups and that kind of thing and and, and also that kind of fear of the next you know and because you're coming from kiddlehood i guess into adulthood aren't you and then mm-hmm. and that's what it, that's what encapsulated so perfectly was the kind of darkness and death that was overbearing everything but also they had such silliness and light to them with the banter and uh, just oh everything about it I, I was still i think one of my favorite movies of all time and i think it stands mm-hmm. up still to this day my kids watched it with me not too long ago and my son who just turned 11 he was watching he's like oh, i don't watch it because of the the <laughs> long boring credits the beginning which they can't handle <laughs> and, um, and um but of course you know once they get into it and the story and i think the emo- it just gets you in immediately just drags you in emotionally and I, my kids just loved it just absolutely loved it yeah which i think it's incredible i think 35 or four years later on it still could have that impact on kids who are used to fast-paced moving films you know mm-hmm. like marvel yeah. films and whatnot but it was, it was so sweet and lovely and river phoenix was oh god i mean my daughter's she wants to put posters up of river phoenix i mean god I <laughs> after seeing that he was yeah. so beautiful wasn't he just so gorgeous and wonderful and, and yeah. i think I, I think every all of us could have probably identified with so many aspects of different of the different characters as well you you know you didn't know which one you were but you wanted to be one of them so you could kind of fit in for me it was like i mean as a massive <laughs> massive gay lord uh, i think my experience was probably a little bit different but like i remember you know being a, a little gay boy who probably didn't really understand that yet and yeah being like oh that, that river phoenix uh, i want to be his friend but i i also want to uh, sit on his lap i don't know, you know? Uh, yeah. yeah yeah i think i think all of us felt like that even straight boys <laughs> <laughs> yeah it, it is just like uh, watching, there's a few of his movies that, did you ever see Running on Empty? I did, but I, I, it's a long time ago. I can't remember it. Those, Seriously, I remember yeah, gone. Those mm. two performances just always make me feel this just like a really profound sadness still, even, you know, whatever, 30 years after he died. Yeah. But it's just like, what a horrible, horrible loss. Um, oh, it's terrible just, loss. Just so talented and and really just it's he he's one of those people who it's like James Dean levels of he's just such an icon and such a yeah. um not just a movie star but someone who really his acting trans- was was he's so transcendent wasn't he in right. yeah yeah, yeah. I mean, there's um, that scene when he's crying when, and it's uh, Will mm-hmm. Wheaton's character and, they're, and you know, he's talking about the family home and that kind of thing. And uh, I, I mean, just you're all sobbing along with him. I mean, to have that impact on, you know, a bunch of 12, 13 year old boys sitting in a movie theater watching it, you know, and all of us sobbing away as we're watching yeah. it. Was, I mean, it was profound. It was it was I, I think what Rob Reiner did. I don't know how he did it, but they getting those performances out of those guys. Every single one of them felt Corey Feldman. I mean, he was always Corey Feldman to a degree, but yeah, yeah, you had such sympathy for him, you know, with his it wasn't his alcoholic dad, and you know the the kind of 
the criminals of the of the town and whatnot. And, but I, I think it just it encapsulated that kind of sense of adventure that you wanted to have at that age as well. I mean, I, I wanted to go on quests and have adventures yeah. in the woods and stuff like that, you know? And, they, and it was, oh, I mean, I probably would have been the chicken shit being led along by my, by my friends, which I always was. Come, come on, Joe. What, don't hold up. Don't, don't hold us up. I was, I was that guy. <laughs> but, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but but uh, just to have, go on those adventures and looking for something like that and having a, kind of a sense of danger, which, you know, we'd, be, we'd been kept so safe up to that age. And then suddenly you're kind of being pushed out, you know, mm-hmm. it, and and realizing that oh there are bad people out there who are mean and nasty you know because you've been right. protected so much and uh, it, it captured all that stuff yeah, it was yeah yeah in a couple of ways I think like the you know having the the older mean boys you know yeah. uh, Kiefer Sutherland and his crew yeah. kind of uh, terrorizing them mm. that that feeling of like you know getting to be the age where bully bullies really start to be more prominent in school Mm. it's just like kids who you know are kind of mean and you want to avoid or whatever but also that idea of going on this quest and like little kids wanting to have an adventure and you know building things up in their mind and that it's like this fun exciting thing and then the reality of it when they get to this dead body seeing what you know that this it's real it's not this fantasy that they created in their minds and realizing that it's like a much more grown-up upsetting thing than um than what they'd started out with yeah Um, yeah it was uh, all the yeah it was so i was just looking at the um quote at the end which i'd looked up before which was the, I never had any friends later on, and like I had when I was 12, Jesus, does anyone? I think that had a massive impact, uh, I think, at that age as well, because I think you do feel that when you're, when you're first venturing out into the world and you're kind of encountering these evils and whatnot, that that group of friends will let, let stay with you for life, I think. I don't know if yeah. your experience was that mine was like that, and it's not born fruit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think the feeling was uh, definitely that. Yeah, and it, it is, I think having a movie that so perfectly encapsulates that that time in my life mm. when I was that age, I, it just really felt like, you know, I think that that's another testament to Rob Reiner's direction is that it doesn't ever feel patronizing. It doesn't ever feel like he's saying, these are just little kids who don't know anything. It's like, you know, showing the complexity of being in your early teens and kind of just beginning to, uh, assert your independence, but also really understand the the world that you're you know losing the protections that your parents have have mm, given you, mm. and you're actually going to have to start making your own way in the world soon. Um, so exactly, and, and learning about others, kind of different familial relationships. So, you know, like uh, the ones where they are broken families, or ones that are on the verge of breaking up, and that kind of thing, and and, and how difficult it, like you don't you suddenly start to realize how hard it is for your friend to be in that house that he's growing up in, and that kind of thing, and that it. And everybody could recognize that at a at a level, but you never knew how to voice it. I think, you know. Yeah. And so seeing the kids talk about difficulties at home, it was yeah, it was how they got. It wasn't patronizing. It really kind of spoke to everybody, and as if you're, they were speaking through kids' voices. And whoever the scriptwriters were, I don't know who they were, but they were. They really did it. And Rob Reiner, obviously, 
putting them all together and obviously working it. Because I read somewhere a long time ago that they, I think they'd actually spent like three or four months up in Oregon uh, together, kind of developing friendships and relationships. He had them working on, you know, not necessarily the script, but just making sure that that bond that they had on film was totally real, which I don't think you'd probably be afforded nowadays, but... Yeah. Which is an incredible thing. I, I, there's no other film I can think of since then that has tried to capture anything like that, or or has captured anything like that. Yeah, yeah. It's. A, I, mean, the, I mean, the Goonies maybe tried, but the Goonies was still not on an emotional level. It was just a wonderful mm-hmm. kind of adventure. But other than that, like, I'm hard pressed to think of anything. Yeah, I also probably. I'm not necessarily engaging with the movies that have been made on a similar <laughs> theme since then. For, I, for, I don't know. We're older now. We don't, yeah. we don't need to be watching. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Very good point. Uh, Very good point. <laughs> but uh, who knows? Yeah. Also, like, um, I think it's a, of, of the movies that have been made of Stephen King's work, it's mm. probably one of the most successful if not if not the best one and mm. it's also just you know Steve, Stephen King's books are all kind of known for being horror stuff scary bloody yeah. you know, death is very prevalent <laughs> that this is just uh this pared down you know a story that anybody can relate to and there's no supernatural stuff at all um no so yeah no and just that wonderful story in the middle with the pie eating contest with revenge I mean, <laughs> yeah. which is, yeah <laughs> just yeah which is so well done and enacted. Yeah, and maybe uh, want to be like, be like like Will Wheaton and and the, you know being a storyteller that he was and that kind of, and also but you wanted to have different characteristics of of each character and you know I, I wanted to take each one, <laughs> each mm-hmm. one for me. Yeah, and I think that as well the fact that each of those four boys is so different they all have really distinct personalities but none mm. of it it doesn't feel like he's the cool one he's <laughs> you know it's like they they're all. Real they all people. become interchangeable, don't they? In the sense, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, and the growth of it all. Yeah, just I don't. Yeah, just uh, for me, that was when you look back, you're trying to think of like big cultural, culturally significant moments in your life. That was that was it. That was that was the big, big, big one for me. To to they, they help me kind of grow up and you know seek out friends like that and go on adventures and and I think in film in a different way because it made me approach. You know, been watching Labyrinth or what beforehand or right, <laughs> so right. and and yeah, seek out stories like that. I've always kind of tried to find stories with that kind of emotional truth in ever since. Mm-hmm. And having that complexity that it's like not just one kind of emotional content like there's funny stuff in it there's like elements of adventure like we've said but um Mm. it's you know it's also really tragic and yeah um kind of takes you on an emotional roller coaster (laughs) it does does, doesn't it god bless yeah Yeah. and the song and that which at the end which of course yeah yeah Yeah. the soundtrack i had like i made my parents buy me the soundtrack (laughs) on vinyl and i was like listen to all these like oh wow all these 50s songs that I was like, oh, this is my jam, you know? <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. No, I had that as well, yeah. Oh, yeah, I remember, yeah, I got into Buddy Holly after that and all those kind of things, and mm. yeah. how strange. Yeah. Oh, I'm getting nostalgic. Thanks, yeah. so. oh. Adam. <laughs> <laughs> uh, my work here is done. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, well, great. That, yeah. I think I, I feel very happy with that. Do you feel satisfied? Do you have... Um, I feel satisfied yes I, I really enjoyed that i didn't know where it would go and i I'm, yeah yeah and uh, and much like stand by me you have gone on an emotional journey and uh, <laughs> now it is coming to its end yes uh, it is unfortunately 
So thank you so much. This was so much fun. It was so good to talk to you. Um, thank you so much. I really enjoyed that. Yes. If uh, people who are listening want to find out what you're up to, wh- yes. is oh. there a way for them to do that? Do you post stuff on Twitter or anything that you're uh, doing? Yeah, I do sometimes. Yeah, I, 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 yeah, I'm not great with social media. I'm getting better. I'm working on it. So Twitter would be probably the one for me. And uh, yeah, that would be the one for me. Great. So right now it's, you know, as much as your listeners are probably listening to Thomas the Tank Engine or watching Thomas the Tank Engine. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> that's what we're working on right now. Yeah, and that's video games and stuff. <laughs> yeah. the, um, d- uh, Thomas Heads are my, uh, my target <laughs> they're, audience. They're, they're, so, that's yeah. what I figured. That's what yeah. I figured. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. That's great. Yeah. Um, thank you so much again. And, uh, Thanks, Adam. Really appreciate that. Great. Thanks. Bye. See? What a great guy. Thanks again for chatting with me, Joe. All right, okay, all right. Let's talk recommendations, shall we? Firstly, I saw Maria Bamford at the Bell House in Brooklyn, which is a tiny venue, especially for a comic as famous as she is. And predictably, she was great. I love her so fucking much. If you don't know who she is, you'll recognize her from TV. She was in Arrested Development. She had her own brilliant semi-autobiographical Netflix show called Lady Dynamite, but she's probably most famous as a stand-up and she's one of my faves. She tells stories in a way that's totally unlike any other stand-up ever. It's a little stream of consciousness and she throws a million different characters at you, but she's just pure fucking hilarity. She makes me laugh so hard. It's relentless. There's no recovery time between potentially organ-damaging bouts of laughter. So see her when she comes anywhere near to you. I also went to a member's preview for the new MoMA extension. For those of you who don't live in New York, that's the Museum of Modern Art, and it's nearly doubled in size. I really like the new building. There's no radical architectural delights there, but it's a ton more space, which is desperately needed. It feels like everything has a bit more room to breathe now, and there's more space to move around the tourists. Yay! Lastly, I went to a performance by the Fireside Mystery Theater. They do live radio dramas, and it's usually at least slightly spooky stories. Well, this was a very special show because it was recorded in the Morris Jumel Mansion, which is the oldest surviving residence on the island of Manhattan. It has tons of historical significance. George Washington used it as his headquarters and lived there for a time during the Revolutionary War. And after the war, it was owned by Eliza Jumel, who eventually married Aaron Burr. You may recognize Aaron Burr's name, from, well, American history, but also as a key figure in the musical Hamilton. Spoiler alert, he killed Alexander Hamilton in a duel. So the house is really fucking cool. Lin-Manuel Miranda even wrote part of Hamilton in the house, sitting at Aaron Burr's desk. So experiencing a performance in that atmosphere was pretty special. Is that enough information for you? I hope I haven't overloaded your pretty little brains. But let's call it a day regardless. Pretty please with sugar on top, would you kindly follow me on social media at Spark Parade? If you want to support the show with cold, hard cash, you can donate on the website, which is thesparkparade.com. I know you don't owe me anything, but it would still be cute to throw a buck or two my way, wouldn't it? Daddy's gotta pay the bills, kids. Or if you want to help me out for the price of zero dollars, you can rate and review the show anywhere you stream or download it. Sounds like fun, right? It is! Okay, dudes, have the time of your life this week. Until next time, bye!
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.